Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Today I'm going to talk to you about uh, an area that has been of great interest to my lab for the last 10 years, really since we've moved to New York University. And we've been interested in studying the domestication of plant species. And when I talk to a general audience, I usually start off with something like this. Um, not to whet your appetite, I know I'm standing in between us and the reception, um, but just to illustrate how dependent we are on domesticated species. This is a classic New York everything pizza, or you know, sometimes called a kitchen sink pizza. And I challenge you to name and count the number of species on this pizza. There are 17 species on this pizza. There's three animal species, there's two fungal species, and there are 12 plant species. And all of them are, all of them except possibly one, so 16 out of the 17 are domesticated. That is, these are species that have now co-evolved with humans in the last 12,000 years to provide us as humans with food and sometimes our clothing. Um, we are so dependent on domesticated species that, um, you know, current human societies could not exist without our interaction with these particular taxa that we now use for our nutrition and for our clothing. Uh, and so this is an area that we've been fascinated with in terms of studying. Domestication is an interesting process. As I said, it's a co-evolution between an animal, ourselves, humans, and another species, such that we become uh, the species that takes care of the reproduction and dispersal of another species because that species provides us with some advantage, in this case, for example, nutrition. Um, and we're not the only ones to domesticate species as humans. We're the most prolific domesticators. But we know that in the natural world, agriculture has evolved at least five times, mostly with termites uh, and beetles and cultivating fungi as species. So there are examples of domestication outside of the human interaction. But humans are certainly the most prolific domesticator. And the way domestication has proceeded is because several thousand years ago, our, as a species, Homo sapiens, we changed our behavioral ecology. Prior to 12,000 years ago, when we decided to get nutrition or sustenance, we usually hunted or foraged and gathered um, wild plants, for example. That's how we fed ourselves. Starting about 12,000 years ago, there was a transition in human behavioral ecology. So instead of relying on gathering wild plants for our sustenance, we began to deliberately plant them and cultivate them in gardens and orchards and later on in farms. And that change in human behavior, that transition in our ecology, led to the evolution of a whole suite of species that we now depend on, as I said, for our survival. In plants, there are different estimates for how many domesticated species there are. Um, if you include semi-domesticated species, it ranges from about 1,000 to 2,500 species um, that have been domesticated or are on the way to domestication. 
And as I said, all of these are ones that we now rely on for our survival. And the thing about them that's interesting as a species too is that these are all young species. Almost everything we eat that has come from a farm evolved only in the last 12,000 years, which if you think about the age of the earth or how long life has been on our planet, this is a very, very tiny fraction of the time it's taken during the evolution of life, the last 12,000 years, less than 12,000 generations for many of these species. Um, and it's this young age of many of these species that somebody like me, who's an evolutionary biologist, wants to study. How did these species come about? So 12,000 years ago, this is where it started in the Fertile Crescent, a region um, just north of us or, and northwest of us that goes from the Gulf into the size of the Zagreb Mountains, the Zagros Mountains, I'm sorry, uh, and into the Levant. This is the area where, the, uh, where agriculture started. The oldest example of agriculture occurred in this area. And starting about 12,000 years ago, in this region was, was domesticated several of the major crops, some of which we still rely on. Wheat, for example, barley, rye, oats, lentils. Um, it was also the site of domestication of certain key animal species that we rely on for food, most um, prominently um, pigs, sheep, and cows. Um, so it is in this region where we owe the, 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 the origin of the first domesticated species. And this was, a, this was a really major transition, as I said, in human ecology. For one thing, instead of being nomadic hunter-gatherers, we started to settle in communities. And so this is one of the earliest Neolithic sites in Turkey, uh, and one of the earliest Neolithic sites uh, in the world is Katalhoyuk, which has been, it's actually a fairly organized and first fairly large-scale settlement that has given us many clues about the origin of modern agriculture. And with the transition of humans from hunting-gathering to agriculture and the, and, and, and the rise in food surpluses, the settling into communities, um, it gave rise to a variety of different things, uh, including writing, large-scale art, and so on. Much of what we think of as human civilization had its origins in the cities that came about because of domestication starting in the Fertile Crescent. It's no surprise that the first cities on the planet were in the Fertile Crescent where agriculture was first, uh, uh, was first conducted by humans. But it's not only the Fertile Crescent 12,000 years ago where domestication has taken place. We know that domestication occurred in several places around the world. Um, for example, independently of the Fertile Crescent, about 1,000 years later in... In China, um, they started to domesticate millets and then later on rice. And millets, for example, are really the, the, the staple that, that, that lay the foundations of Chinese civilization. And in the old world, humans also started to farm and domesticate. That's where we get our corn, where we get our squashes, uh, where we get our beans. So all around the world, humans, independently of each other, started to make the transition to domestication. It's not clear yet why this occurred around the world independently. And aside from that, there are other areas in the world, in West Africa, in Papua New Guinea, in South Asia, 
uh, in the eastern United States, a domestication also occurred, although these might not be independent domestications. They probably learned about domestication and farming from other cultures. So we have this widespread area around the world where domestication has actually occurred. And the this actually, the evolution of these domesticated species was accompanied by large-scale transformations in morphology that we now recognize. But you probably don't recognize the wild ancestors of the banana when you go to Carrefour or Spinney's to get your banana. Um, the, the wild banana um, looks nothing like, especially when you cut it open, like the domesticated banana. Carrots, uh, which are probably domesticated uh, either in Turkey or the Mediterranean, uh, originated from Queen Sans Lace. The straggly roots are probably nothing like the uh, domesticated carrot that you see. And of course, one of the classic examples is Teosinte or maize, where if you look at Teosinte, it's a very small, very hard-cased, um, uh, seed-cased uh, crop, um, looking nothing like, whoops, looking nothing like a modern domesticated maize. The large-scale transformation of wild species into domesticated species that we rely on for our food makes for a fascinating study in evolutionary biology. And in fact, Darwin, when he published Origin of Species in 1859, the first chapter of Origin of Species was devoted to trying to talk about domesticated species. In this case, he was talking about largely domesticated pigeons. Darwin was fascinated by domestication because he liked to look at the variation you observe within domesticated species. For example, he was looking at different pigeon breeds. But as many of you probably know, he looked at artificial selection, the selection by breeders within domesticated species, as an analogy to natural selection, which he then proposed as the creative force behind the origin of new species. He really went thinking about how domestication occurred and how breeding occurred into thinking about natural selection. So we owe a lot to the study of domesticated species in trying to understand the evolution of species. And in fact, the first book he published after Origin of Species was The Variation of Animals and Plants Under Domestication. Um, Origin of Species, by the way, was supposed to be the abstract. Um, he was going to publish more detailed analysis so the first chapter of his big opus on evolution was variation of plants and anim animals and plants. And he never, actually after that, he gave up and he stopped. Um, he never continued on that big project. Darwin was interested in domestication and the reasons he was interested in domestication continues to drive what many of us who are also interested in the evolutionary process do. We are also interested in trying to understand evolution by looking at domestication as models for how the evolutionary process uh, may continue and go on forward. Um, so several of us, and here in this meeting, we've heard several, uh, several uh, researchers who have been focusing on the study of domestication or domesticated species as a way to study how evolution proceeds. And this is actually a really interesting time in the study of evolutionary biology of domesticated species. Because in the last 10 or 20 years, um, intensive effort by two groups of researchers have begun to, begun to change our ideas for how domestication has actually taken place. So there are geneticists who have been sequencing whole genomes and looking at population genomics 
as well as mapping genes under domestication and crop diversification that are changing the way we think about the genetics of domestication and how the genes underlying this process are occurring. And then we have the archaeologist, or this is our version of archaeologist. By the way, I put this deliberately. I, I usually also give talks in archaeology audiences, and I point out that me as a geneticist, we're really disfavored by Hollywood because on the left is what Hollywood thinks a geneticist look like, and on the right is what they think an archaeologist looks like, and it's really, you know, we need to change as a geneticist, we need to change our image in the public. But archaeologists in the last 20 years have also begun to transform our understanding of how this process occurs. And what I'm going to talk to you about in the next um, uh, 30 or 40 minutes are some of these new insights into how domestication has occurred that have been gleaned in the last 10 or 20 years from both genetic and archaeological data. So... I, I usually turn this in terms of new insights. The first insight that has taken place is now this understanding that we think domestication actually takes a long time. Um, so if you look at how domestication takes place uh, in the stages of domestication, sometime 12,000 years ago, some individuals in a hunter-gatherer society started to take plants and cultivate them from the wild. So the first stage is actually that process of just planting and harvesting and replanting. Uh, and then the next stage is as these cultivated populations evolve in the context of a garden or a farm, certain desirable alleles start to increase in frequency. And really, it's these two, the first stage and the second stage, that is the heart of the domestication process. Afterwards, these cultivated and domesticated species suddenly move out of where they originated and move around the world into new ecologies. So they, you get um, adaptation to different environments, which I usually call the diversification stage and some other call, call the improvement stage. And of course, there's modern breeding or deliberate breeding only in the last 200 years. Um, and it's been thought that the first two stages, especially the second stage where you have this increase in a desirable alleles took place very rapidly. Um, and if you, uh, if you think about how tr uh, agriculture occurred around the world and the evolution of these species, um, many researchers prior to about 20 years ago really thought that this was a rapid transition. The rapid transition agricultural model was the one that was favored by anthropologists and by geneticists. But in the last 10 or so years, there has now been increasing evidence that this process did not occur rapidly. It actually occurred over a protracted period of time that spanned maybe several tens of thousands of years. Um, this again, this is, I, I take this to show people, this is uh, from a review in an anthropolo anthropology journal where what they did was they looked at different models for how domestication proceeded and thinking about these different models, how fast this occurred. If you look at this column here, um, which, uh, which, which shows you the pace of domestication. Only, most of these say that domestication occurs rapidly or very rapidly. And in one case, they say it takes only seven years to domesticate a new species. Uh, and certainly, if you, uh, if, if you put very strong selective pressure on a species, it's possible that just in a handful of generations, you could get domestication uh, and, and that this process is driven by very rapid evolution. But and actually, by looking at more detailed archaeological records, 
it has now become clear that this process may not have occurred as rapidly as people have thought. So this was uh, uh, pioneered by several folks, uh, George Wilcox in France, Dorian Fuller in, uh, in uh, Britain, uh, and I helped in this area several years ago where I applied evolutionary models to archaeological data. And this really summarizes a lot of the work we did. If you look at a time series in the archaeological record for a, a key trait that's involved in domestication in, in plants. This is the non-shattering of seeds. So non-shattering is a key domestication trait because most plants, when the seed is mature, they shatter. That is, they disperse from the plant and then lay down and the next generation occurs. If you're a farmer, you do not want shattering seed, right? Because if you harvest the plant and all the seed falls off, you're not getting any harvest. So one of the key traits for domestication, especially in the cereal crops, such as wheat and barley and rice, is non-shattering. That is the ability of a farmer to harvest a plant and the seed remains on the stalk. It, there are several genes that are responsible for this. They're called the shattering genes, and they've been cloned in several groups around the world. Um, but they can also be seen in the archaeological record by looking at the, uh, at the base of the spikelets that are found uh, in botanical remains in uh, different um, archaeological sites. And if you look at the frequency of the increase of this trait as it goes through time, it takes a long time for this trait to go to fixation. Um, so, for example, if you look at barley, emmer, einkorn, wheat, and the fertile crescent, it takes between two to 3,000 years for this trait to go into full fixation. Uh, and in rice, it takes an equivalent amount uh, in Asia, so separate, a separate group. It didn't take a few hundred years to get a domesticated species. It probably took several thousand years. And as I said, it's this trait is very important in thinking about domestication because once you have a plant that's non-shattering, the seed cannot disperse on its own, it is now completely dependent on humans for cultivation and propagation. And that's the key hallmark of what a domesticated species is. It has to live in association with humans or it's not going to survive. So the archaeological record is now beginning to tell us, and this has been repeated in many different studies, um, that it's taking a long time for many of these domestication traits to go to fixation. But recently, we, and, and it used to be that only the archaeological record told us um, how long it took to, domesticated spe to domesticate species. But recently, looking at the genome of species and applying tools from population and evolutionary genomics, we're now beginning to get a signature for this protracted domestication, for how long it took for domestication to take place. So, based, using sequencing technology coupled with computational techniques in population genetics, um, we're able to look at how long domestication has taken place. And the way we do that is the following. If you think about how domestication proceeds, what happens is you've got these wild relatives that are growing in the wild, and they have a certain gene pool, their population size may be very large, and then a small group of individuals from that wild relative is taken out, and that's what is farmed by the early farmers, and it's that small population that leads to domestication. Um, and usually this is called the domestication bottleneck. So you have this situation where an ancestor is a very large population and the population size is dramatically reduced in what's called a population bottleneck. 
that eventually gives rise to the domesticated species. That's kind of the model and it's been seen in most animal crop species. Um, several years ago, um, we started to look at one particular domesticated species, not the Fertile Crescent, but in Africa, African rice, Oglobarima. And Yves Vigoro from France gave a talk uh, earlier, this uh, earlier this morning where he talked about his work in African rice as well. And his, uh, his work and our work jives in most, not all aspects, but in most aspects. So we were also looking at the domestication of African rice or Oryza globarina, which is a domesticate that from the archeological record appears to have arisen in West Africa about 3000 years ago. We had sequenced about uh, 100 varieties, uh, traditional varieties of African rice that were found in West Africa. And when we, we use a technique to try to look at the, what we call the coalescence of alleles within the African rice genome in the population, and what it tells us about the population size of the population at certain points in time. If you look at globarino, which is this blue arrow here, you notice that African rice originated about 3,000 years ago, but prior to that, the population size had started to decrease further back in time. Actually, the decrease, at least in our analysis of African rice, started about 10 to 12,000 years ago. So 10 to 12,000 years was how long this bottleneck occurred. It didn't occur instantaneously. It didn't occur in a few hundred years. It started to gradually reduce in, 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 in its effective size, starting about 10 to 12,000 years ago. And during that period, there was a reduction of the effective population size by about 20-fold. Um, there's a debate now between Evigoro's group and mine on what's driving this. He feels it's a large-scale climate change. Um, we feel that it's actually the process of domestication, and I think that this is still subject to debate. Um, but what's interesting is that in other domesticated species, we still see the same pattern. So um, from uh, Matthew Hufford and uh, Jeff Ross Ibarra's group, they did it for maize, and they find a 9,000-year bottleneck. Again, species that did not uh, arise instantaneously or in a very short period of time, it took a 9,000-year bottleneck in the Americas. And in grapes, the interesting thing is that this is from Brandon Gott's group. Um, they showed that the population decline in grapes occurred in 20 to 30,000 years ago, actually past the last glacial maximum. That's when grapes started to begin to decline in size until the appearance of domesticated grapes about five or 6,000 years ago. And many other species that have been looked at are, be, are all showing the same picture, that in the emergence of these species, it was preceded by a very prolonged bottleneck that occurred over several thousand years. Um, and while there's still debate on what's causing that, we think, or I think, and several others think, um, that this is because the process of domestication was taking a long time to occur. So what's been interesting now in the last few years, both from the archaeology and now from looking at genome sequences, we're able to show that the first stages of domestication actually occurred over a span of several thousand years. And one of the things that's interesting is, now, why did it take so long? And that's something that many researchers are beginning to try to understand. Why did it take so long for domestication to actually occur? Second insight comes from several work that's been done in many different crop species. And it boils down to this, hybrids are important. Hybrids between species are important both in the domestication process and also in the movement of domesticated species from where they came from to other parts of the world. 
So it's this part of the stage, either in the early domestication or in the adaptation of species to different environments as they moved out from their centers of origin. And I'm going to talk about date palm because this was just published three weeks ago in the, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, which I don't have to introduce date palms to the local audience here. It's, of course, the indigenous crop of the Arabian Peninsula and the major crop um, of this region, of hot, arid regions. Um, but it's a crop that extends from growth from India all the way to North Africa. Um, and there have been many models for the evolution and origin of these species. Um, um, many of the models suggest that the origin occurred some here, somewhere either in the Fertile Crescent or here in the Gulf region, and then spread subsequently to uh, North Africa. Certainly the oldest archaeological records for date bombs are found in the Gulf region, actually on Dalma Island uh, here in the Emirates. Several years ago, we started this project. That was our, the first project we started at NYU, which we called the 100 Dates Project. Uh, that we published in 2015, where we took um, traditional varieties from the entire traditional range of date palms from India all the way to North Africa. We sequenced their genomes, and we looked at their genomes to see what it told us about the evolution of dates. Uh, and we have all of this information that was published in 2015. Uh, we said 100 date varieties. We never actually got to 100 varieties in that study. We got to 62. It turns out it's incredibly difficult to get 100 date varieties, at least initially when we were starting out. And I'd like to say that this was led by Khaled Hazuri, who is probably in the audience, and he's now with the Khalifa Center for Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology. And Jonathan Flowers is one of my senior postdocs who was also very involved in this study. Um, so we looked at um, date palm variation. And one of the things that we noticed, and we weren't the first to, to, to show this, was that if you look at Middle East dates and North African dates, Genetically, they're actually distinct. So the, the, uh, the Middle East dates, this is, a, this, is what, this is a population structure analysis. It's a form of clustering where we look at the genome of an individual and ask ourselves, if you look at the genome of an individual, how many different, where does that genome come from? Do they come from one population or multiple populations? And who are they related to? So each of these, you, you, of course, you can't see the, the vertical columns. Each one represents a different a variety. So we've got Lulu here. We've got, uh, you know, Kadrawi dates here from the Middle East, from this region. Uh, and the fact that it's one color here suggests that the, the genome shows it's coming from one population in its ancestry. If you look at North African dates, which is here on the extreme left, you notice that it's all red. Uh, and many of them are primarily red. That's saying that it's coming from a genetically distinct population, their genome. And in the middle, in uh, dates from Egypt, for example, they look like they're hybrid between North African dates from, say, Morocco or in Algeria and the dates we find, for example, in the Gulf region. And as I said, we weren't the first to show this. We were the first to show this genome-wide, but others had seen this in different uh, pieces of molecular data, that North African dates and Middle East dates were genetically distinct from each other. Now, that's interesting because at first, it, the thought was, well, maybe dates evolved twice, once in the Middle East or here in the Gulf region and another in North Africa. But if you look again at the archaeological record, you see that there's actually a nice gradient in the appearance of dates from the east to the west. So the oldest dates are found in the Gulf region, about seven to 6,000 years um, present. Um, it actually doesn't cross the Red Sea really until 3,600 years ago. There's an old date found about 5,000 years ago, but that's a very, it, it's a very isolated sample. 
Most of the increase in dates in Egypt are about 3,600 years ago. It doesn't show up in Libya until 2,600 years ago. And it doesn't show really in, in say, Mali and the, um, the western part of North Africa until pretty much, um, the, you know, the Middle Ages. So archaeologically, you see this gradient. And this would suggest initially that maybe what was going on was dates were going from the Middle East into North Africa. But the question is, why didn't these get this genetic differentiation? So in order to look at this, um, Muriel Grosbaltasard, who was then working at Montpellier, and actually she was a postdoc with this study uh, with Daniel Wegman, again, who's in the audience from the University of Fribourg, had published uh, an analysis of uh, date palms. In fact, she actually had found that there's uh, an old date palm population in Oman, the wild date palms of Oman, might actually be the ancestor of uh, modern date palms, or at least a relic old lineage. Um, and she had looked also, and, 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 and she had analyzed um, uh, date palms from, uh, from Oman in different parts of the region. But um, we also know that there are wild relatives of date palms that are found scattered um, both in Southeast Asia and in Africa uh, and around the region. Um, so we decided to look more carefully because our, in my lab, our first instinct when we get a new species, let's sequence the genome. Let's see what it tells us. And we sequence the genome of several wild relatives of dates. This is just a clustering diagram to show you how they're related to each other. Here are the Middle East dates. Um, their North African dates are also uh, seen here. Um, then Phoenix sylvestris, I'm actually not getting this here. Phoenix sylvestris over here um, is a palm, a wild palm that grows in South Asia and India. And it's believed to be the closest wild relative of date palms. It might not be the ancestor, but it's the closest wild relative of date palms. And then other species that are found uh, around the region, we also sequence. And you can see that they're further from date palms than even Phoenix sylvestris. Things like Phoenix theophrasti, reclinata, and canariensis. Um, but this is when we did this clustering analysis um, for the date palms and their wild relatives. Um, you notice here's the Middle East dates here, mostly one color. And if you look at North African dates, they're actually they're two colors in their genome, suggesting that they come from two populations. One looks like part of their genome comes from the Middle East, but where does this other part come from? It looks like it's from Phoenix Theophrasti. Um, and that got us really excited except that we only had two examples. We had two or three samples, I think. Yeah, we had two samples of Phoenix Theophrasti. Um, so we were a little bit cautious. Is this real? So we went back to collecting Phoenix Theophrasti. And what's Phoenix Theophrasti? Phoenix Theophrasti is a wild palm that's found largely in the island of Crete. Um, Crete, a little bit of South Turkey, a little bit of mainland Greece, but really it's in Crete. And if you go in Crete in... <laughs> their beach resorts, they have these, uh, these, these wild Cretan palm stands. Um, the largest palm forest in Europe is actually on uh, Vi, in the, the beach resort of Vi in Crete. If you actually go to, once we realize this, we actually, we just went to Google Maps and looked at Google Maps and zoomed in on Crete and you could find um, palm populations. So here's the palm forest in Vi. Um, this is on Prevalley Beach. You can see the palm trees there. And so what do you do? Well, Jonathan decided to take uh, a two-week, or no, a one-week collecting trip to Crete in the winter, so it was nice in Crete. He collected samples from uh, all over Crete, and we had collaborators on Crete and in Switzerland that collected for us also on mainland Greece. 
as well as uh, we had some population. Well, we have some uh, samples from southern Turkey as well. And when we look at the analysis, it confirmed that initial result. So we have date palms from the Middle East, date palms from North Africa. The North African dates appear to have two genomic constitutions, and one of them comes from Phoenix Defrasti. And we looked at other tests um, that we could do to confirm that indeed North African date palms appear to be a hybrid between Middle East dates and Phoenix Theophrasti. We think that between 5 or 18% of the North African date palm genome comes from this wild species in Crete. Um, and so this changes our picture of how date palms have evolved over the last few thousand years. We think that they originated in the Gulf region about 7,000 years ago, and then they spread to both uh, e uh, eastwards to India and westwards to Egypt until about 3,000 years ago. Then what happened was they met up when they got to the um, eastern Mediterranean, they met up with Phoenix Theophrasti. We don't know where. Did it happen in Crete? Did it happen in the Levant? Did it happen in Egypt? But some hybridization took place. That hybrid then gave rise to North African date palms, which spread further west. And if you look at Crete, actually, you realize how important palms were to Crete. If you look at Minoan pottery, for example, you see like palms in, 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 in their pottery, or also in their coinage, you're seeing palms 2003 years ago. So, People of Crete really um, were, were intimately associated with their palm trees. Um, so this was not a minor uh, plant species uh, in Minoan civilization. And, all, and the Minoans, about 3,500 to 3,000 years ago, they had an extensive trading network in the Eastern Mediterranean, from Crete all the way to Egypt, into the Levant, and possibly into Italy as well. So it's not implausible to suggest that they might have been moving also date palm cultivars or Phoenix Theophrasti um, around in the region. And then, of course, the Phoenicians um, came subsequent to the Minoans, and the Phoenicians had an extensive trading network, and they also established colonies all the way into the Western Mediterranean. Uh, Phoenicia, there's a debate on where the name comes from, but one translation is that they're the land of palms. Uh, and if you look, the one thing is, if you look at the writing, um, uh, uh, Mago, who's a Phoenician Punic writer from Carthage, reports 2,300 years ago, date palm agriculture in Carthage. And if you look at their coins, almost all their coins have a date palm as part of it. And remember the dates when the Phoenicians were around. That's about the same time, within about 400 years, when date palms started to appear in Libya and other parts of North Africa. This is complete speculation, but it suggests to us that maybe part of the spread of date palms into the Mediterranean, into, into North Africa, was, may have been um, done by the Phoenicians. So next time you have a medjool date, or deglutnur date, which is from North Africa, it's a hybrid between date palms, Phoenix dactylifera in the Middle East, and this wild species that's found in the island of Crete. But it's not the only plant, uh, domesticated plant species where you see this. Um, apples have the same story. Apples originated in Kazakhstan, in the Caucasus, in Central Asia, they were domesticated there, but then they began to move westward. And as they moved westward, uh, especially when they hit Europe, they hybridized with the European crab apple. And modern domesticated apples, the ones that we buy in the grocery store, such as this, are actually a hybrid between that original domesticate in Central Asia and the European crab apple. Um, rice is another area that we've been studying, uh, and we have proposed um, that 
the origin of indica rice, which is one of the largest groups of rice that is now the dominant rice grown in the world, is actually a hybrid between um, japonica rice, which originated in China, and something which we're still not sure what it is. It's a relative of rice that was growing in India about 4,500 years ago. So over and over again, and these are just a few examples and we can name others, where we see that the movement of crop species outside of where they originated, and as they begin to move to other parts of the world and need to adapt to different climates and different environments, we think that hybridization with local populations is providing them with genes that may allow them to be adapted to local environments outside of where they originated. This is still a hypothesis, it's still speculation, but over the next few years, I think we're going to find evidence that, in fact, this hybridization events are providing the ability for these crop species to adapt to new environments. And what it's also doing is it's changing our understanding of the process by which crops are evolving as they move out of where they originated. And finally, this last one, uh, very shortly, is just to, to look at the genetic basis for many of these traits. And another insight that's occurred in the last few years, or it, it's something that we, I think we've known for a long time, but the evidence has just continued to gather over the last few years, that if you look at traits in different domesticated species, the same genes are used over and over again to give you those same traits, even among distantly related species. Um, when you get domestication, as I said, you get the evolution of a large number of different traits. And over the last, I would say, 25, 30 years, geneticists have managed to identify and isolate many of the genes underlying both domestication traits and diversification traits within crop species. So we be are beginning to know what these genes are. And again, we're beginning to get a picture for how these genes might be evolving. So let's go back to date palm because it's as good, a, you know, it's good as example as any for this phenomenon. Again, we're going back to this 2015 paper where we looked at the date palm genome and sequenced it. And one of the things that uh, caught our attention was we, th we, we, we were able to get what we think was the underlying genetic basis of a, uh, a trait in date palms, which is the fruit color. When, when dates are not, ripe, are not yet ripe, they can either be yellow or red. Okay, and especially in North Africa, this is um, uh, in, in, uh, actually here in, the, um, uh, in the, the Gulf region in the Middle East, you can really see that polymorphism of, of red versus yellow dates. Uh, and uh, we were interested in looking at the genetic basis for this. And what helped us was the fact that oil palms, which is a different palm species, it's, relate, it, it, it's uh, um, diverged from date palms about 30 million years ago. So these are very distantly related species. They also show this polymorphism in color of their fruits, between yellow and dark colored fruits. Um, and this was cloned um, by um, Rob Martinson and a group of Malaysian geneticists um, about five years ago. And they showed that the gene um, that encodes the color transformation of uh, oil palm, it is a transcription factor that is a gene that regulates other genes by binding to its DNA and activating downstream genes. Um, and what they find that in the yellow-colored fruit, there were mutations, several mutations, that knocked out the gene, or at least made a shorter protein than what was produced by the wild type. Um, and so that, um, you know, that, that had been around now. The, the, the oil palm people had shown this rather well. Um, my group, when we looked at this and, and saw this, and actually it was, 
I think it was Khaled Azuri who first, who first thought of this and noticed this. He says, well, if we see this in oil palm, what's the date palm gene doing? So what he did was he looked at, he basically did a phylogeny of the gene in different plant species and look at our date palm genome and pulled out the genes that were homologous or homologs to the oil palm gene or the Varesenge gene. And what we found when we sequenced that was that those date palm fruits that had yellow fruits had an allele that had a transposable element insertion of third exon. A transposable element is what's we colloquially known as a jumping gene. It's a piece of DNA that moves around and inserts into genes and can actually knock out the gene. And we showed that the presence of this transposable element in this third exon actually was associated with um, the red-yellow color polymorphism in date palms, similar to what was happening in oil palms, although by a different genetic mechanism. Recently, we're now in the process of genome-wide association mapping of a variety of date palm traits. Um, just to confirm, we also map color uh, with about 160 individuals, and um, this is the result. We have a peak here on chromosome 4, linkage group 4, that's right on top of the Varesage gene that's controlling the red-yellow color polymorphism, confirming our earlier results. Um, so here we have a mapping of a gene that's involved in color polymorphism in date palms that is the same gene that's being used by oil palms, but it's actually the same gene that's used in other red-yellow polymor red polymorphisms as well. In grapes, in apples, in peaches, in chocolate, it's this gene that is responsible for color polymorphism or color differences in fruits. Um, and we're, beginning, we're seeing that, again, you're using, looking, looking at the same gene over and over again in what are actually fairly distantly related species. Um, and we're seeing this in other genes as well, just, just to, to wrap up. Um, one of the important genes in rice that's important for rice quality is a gene called waxy. If you look at different rice varieties, they differ, they, they differ in the level of amylose and amylopectin, the two molecules that make up starch. The higher your amylopectin level or the lower your amylose level in your starch, when you cook the rice, the stickier it gets. So indica rice is actually high amylose, not very sticky. Tempered japonica, which used in sushi, has got a lower amylose content and higher amylopectin and it's sticky when you cook it, and glutinous rice, which you make mochi out of, it's actually no amylose. It's all amylopectin. The gene that does that is a gene called the waxy gene. Um, there's a mutation in the first uh, 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 intron donor site of this gene that basically, this is the gene that is responsible for making amylose. So this mutation knocks out the ability of the plant to produce amylose in the seed, and that leads to the sticky rice um, phenotype. Very nice story. But it turns out that glutinosity or stickiness in cereals have evolved over and over again in different, in different types of plants. Of course, in rice, in foxtail millet, in barley, in Japan, broom corn millet, job cereals, sorghum in sub-Saharan Africa, and the amaranth species in the New World. And guess what? All of them have a mutation in their waxy gene as the one responsible for stickiness in those cereals. It's interesting that most of them were actually um, important selection for Japanese and Korean cuisine because the Japanese and Koreans like sticky cereals. And so many of these are actually found in North China, Korea, and Japan, where they've evolved mutations in the waxy gene that have given them stickiness. Nikolai Vavilov, the, Russian, the famous Russian geneticist, who really was one of the leading 
leading scientists who really studied crop evolution and crop domestication in Russia. In 1951, actually, um, had published a paper uh, where he suggested that in different species, not just in domesticated species, but in other species, um, there's a law of what he called homologous variation, where, as he puts it, species groups more or less nearly related to each other are characterized by a similar series of variation with such regularity that knowing a variety in one species, one can forecast the existence of similar forms in other species. So basically saying, if you're seeing one species that have this type of variation, let's say red and yellow colored fruits, you're going to see that in other species. And by the way, it's probably because they're using the same genes. And now we're beginning to have the data that is beginning to confirm Vavilov's um, uh, law of homologous variation. And this is actually interesting from a practical point of view. Because what it tells us is that if we identify an important gene that's important for a particular adaptive trait in a crop species, if we look for that gene in other crop species, it's probably involved in that trait in those other crop species as well. It makes the ability of plant scientists to identify important genes for crop breeding and adaptation much easier. So those are the three insights that I think, as I said, in the last 20 years, is beginning to solidify as new insights into how we understand how these species that we rely on for our food have evolved. We think that it takes a long time, it doesn't take a short time. We think hybridization is important, and we think the same genes are used over and over again in even distantly related species to give you the same traits. And the reason that my group studies domestication, as I said, we're evolutionary biologists. We really are interested in trying to understand how evolution proceeds by looking at these very interesting species, which we call crop species. But on the other side, it's important to study these species because we are faced with a crisis in agriculture throughout the world. The population of the world is expected to hit 10 billion people in just under 30 years or just over 30 years. Um, we cannot, with our current food production, we cannot feed that much people in the world. Um, right now, the rate of increase in yield every year for the world is about 1%. Every year, we do 1% better in our yield for crop species. In order to be the population target, we actually have to have a 2% increase. We have to double our yield. And we have to double our yield because of population pressure. And also, we have to adapt to a changing environment where global climate is changing, we get more erratic environments, um, and we get a warmer planet. How we meet these challenges is something that's very important. And one of the things that I think about when I look at our studies in evolution is that we have faced that challenge in the past. The last global warming episode on the planet was when domestication occurred. So the planet left the last glacial maximum, started to warm up, and humans adapted by changing their ecology and by domesticating a whole series of species to feed them after the last glacial maximum. It's a challenge for us now as a group to see whether by understanding what's happened in the past, over the last 12,000 years, after the last major global warming, are there lessons we can learn there for trying to understand how we can do it again in the future and adapt to a new agriculture that we may need in a different planetary environment? So I'd like to end off by thanking um, several people, the funding sources that have helped us uh, do this work, uh, both in New York and in Abu Dhabi. And the, the people in the laboratory, both in here in Abu Dhabi and New York, that have been very important in carrying out the work of domestication in my group. 
So with that, thank you very much. Um, I thank you for your attention. And I think I can answer a few questions. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.